It's Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. a rare instance when the world premiere of a musical theatre work happens on a Columbia stage. I'm not sure what the last one was, maybe Plan 9, the musical from Outer Space, which made its world debut on the Maplewood Barn stage. But this weekend, a new work of musical theatre called A Small Town Christmas, described as a new, old-fashioned but original musical, opens at Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre for a two-weekend run. The musical's book was written by New York-based actor and writer Stacia Fernandez, whose career has included stints on Broadway in Mamma Mia, The Drowsy Chaperone and Beauty and the Beast, as well as several national tours, including Evita. And the show's music and lyrics are written by Danny J. Rooney, a graduate of Syracuse University's musical theatre programme and the composer, lyricist and co-writer for a musical called The Super, which is currently in development. And this evening, both Stacia Fernandez and Danny Rooney are here to tell us more about the Smalls of Small Town. Stacia and Danny, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you for having us. Diana, we're so happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, given the momentous news of last week, it seems only respectful to ask you about the influence the late, great Stephen Sondheim, who died last Friday at the age of 91, had on both your careers. Stacia as an actor and Danny as a composer and librettist. Stacia, let's start with you. I just can't tell you how abuzz the community is in New York, I'm sure all over the country. But the minute that we got the news of Mr. Sondheim's passing, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, people that we consider friends and certainly business colleagues were just awash in stories about his legacy and how how they are all in musical theater because of him and how he drove them to the arts. Mm. I, uh, I think it's difficult as a society to mourn the passing of someone who's lived such an amazing life, you know, to live a good long life and pass away in his sleep the way he did. That's the order of life, right? That's the circle of life. But to not take a moment to recognize the loss of who he represented in musical theater is is a is a crime. He changed the linear storytelling of musical theater into what it is today in every one of its forms. And uh, he was bold and he never did anything that didn't scare him a little. And <laughs> I I just, I can't, just can't tell you. He's the grandfather of us all. I, he's a genius in the detail. And I think he is particularly musical theater. He's our Albert Einstein. Mm. Danny, how did Sondheim influence your musical sensibilities? Yeah, I mean, he's just an absolute giant of musical theater. You know, it's hard to even imagine what musical theater today would have been like without him. I actually saw someone post on Instagram the other day that now there truly are giants in the sky. Um, And I trained at Syracuse as an actor, and I remember doing his songs and performing his songs, and it really influenced me as a lyricist and as a composer that, you know, he gets into the actor's heads with when he's writing. He's Everything is there on the page, and it's a gift to the actor where you're supposed to breathe 
what emphasis words go on which syllables you know it's 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 all there for you and and it's selfless you know he's a very selfless writer i think he really writes for the characters and gets in their heads and i'm no stun time but i definitely been influenced by his work everyone has is there any hint of Sondheim Danny in a small town Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I'd love to think so. Danny, there's some Sondheimdium rhymes. I love I love an internal rhyme, you know, and I think I learned a lot of that from listening to his work and you know, I also really really love using consonants rather than just rhyme and having those consonants really stick out. I was saying yesterday one of my favorite lyrics from a funny thing on the way to the forum, a uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Is from a song called Love I Hear. And uh, at the end, let's see if I get this right. It's um, today I woke too weak to walk. Like who comes up with that, you know? And so just, it's so clever. And it's, but when you hear it, you don't think, oh, that's on time. You think, oh, wow, that character is so witty. And, you know, we were lucky enough last night, Diana, to go through a little service or not wasn't even a service was just an honoring of Mr. Sondheim with the cast and the director of our show before a tech rehearsal and to be able to end that 15 minute remembrance of Mr. Sondheim and his influence with these college students as they finish their careers here at Stevens and go into the world as professional artists was very special and to be able to end that with his words of bit by bit putting it together to to be able to say that to them and know that that's what they're living and how relevant it is and Danny's 100% right he knows the art form so deeply and for him to write those lyrics and then we get to say it to these students it's just it was very special yeah he, he may be physically gone from this planet but he will be here for a very very long time in oh, terms yes. of his yes. art form so, Stacia, this production at Stevens is the musical's world premiere. Tell me the origin story for A Small Town Christmas. Well, I was in Mamma Mia with a dear friend, and we had written a television series. It's, it was actually a web series that got picked up as a small television series for a network in New York. And while we were writing that, I was in the middle of as an actor, doing the worst Christmas show I had ever done in my entire <laughs> life. I couldn't even begin to tell you how bad it was and how much the audiences loved it, <laughs> which is the funny part. So I thought, I could write a bad Christmas show, <laughs> but uh, but I found Danny Rooney, and actually it's turned into a good Christmas show. So we, we've we just had many readings of it in New York and lots of changes. You know, when Danny came on board as the composer-lyricist, it just rose to a whole new level. And, and so that's how it got its start, inside of a very bad Christmas musical. We decided to write a good one. And how do you two know each other, Danny? Oh, gosh. Well, my college roommate and good old friend, her name is Sharon Saig, we love her very much, was in Mamma Mia with Stacia at the time. And uh, Sharon actually and I are collaborating on the other show that I'm working on. So she said, you know, I've got this crazy friend Stacia who's writing a Christmas musical and she knows, you know, Sharon's Jewish, but she knows I listen to Christmas music all year long. Um, <laughs> to the chagrin of some of the people who I've lived with. So that's how we know each other, old friend. 
the Mamma Mia link looms again. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. So Stacia, tell us a little bit about the story that unfolds in A Small Town Christmas. It is the story of a family who owns a Christmas tree farm who have been divided by the loss of their parents and one sibling went one way and one sibling went the other way. And when the sibling who went away comes back to town, she blows in on a mighty wind and changes the course of this little town. And these two characters' names are Angela and Evelyn. How very specific. So it's a show about finding family and finding the true meaning of Christmas for these people in small town. I have to ask you about how the novelist Ray Bradbury ended up getting his own song in the production. What's the origin story of of that? It's a very good question. I mean, I will just say that when Stacia came to me with the script, there are songs that were in there. You know, Stacia had written um, an idea for lyrics, sort of uh, some keep them or leave them, you know. And there happened to be a song called Ray Bradbury. And I happen <laughs> I happen to love Ray Bradbury. And so, you know, <laughs> I said Fahrenheit 451 doesn't have a whole lot to do with Christmas. But we ran with it. And it is a, it's a very sweet song. I'll tell you that. It was very inspiring. <laughs> so, Stacia, you put Ray Bradbury in the production in the first place. I did indeed. I don't know. Take my temperature, Diana, because I'm not really <laughs> sure why. I think... I think the the whole idea was that we were doing a new original Christmas musical and there was a library scene in the musical and I just thought how wonderful it would be to have this teeny little educational reference <laughs> to let people sort of go down this crazy path of literary history. And honestly, I don't know what it has to do with Christmas, but somehow... The way that Danny has structured this song, it you'll see, Diana, and so will the people that come see the show, it really is a turning point. It's kind of the I want song at the top of our musical. Ray Bradbury gives us the inspiration to move forward with the story. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, in writing the song, I went and looked at some Ray Bradbury quotes and whatnot. And this the song essentially, not to give too much away about our show, but the song essentially is about these two characters who are like, how are we going to write an original Christmas song, you know? And one of the big things uh, from a Ray Bradbury quote, which I do not remember exactly, but the lyric from the show is, don't worry if it's good right now, just get it on the page. There's room to fix and edit once we're at a later stage. And he was, one of his quotes that he has is all about that. Just get your ideas on the page and you can edit later, but getting stuff down is the first step. Right. Don't hesitate. It's so meta. Yes. So meta. meta. (laughs) Yes. Do not hesitate. So, Danny, as the composer and lyricist, talk to me about the collaboration process and the order of it. Mm. You had the script from Stacia and then you started to write or was there a lot of back and forth? How did it work? There was a lot of back and forth. And I think, you know, I had the script from Stacia and I... I think I probably put a few songs down just so that Stacia could hear my take on things, you know, because we never worked together. And so I put some songs down. And then to be honest, there was a lot of back and forth because I think when myself as a composer lyricist, I like to think of all the songs forwarding plot and and fitting into the story and being a big part of the story. So, I mean, even sometimes I would go to Stacia and say, hey, I have this idea for a song 
the story isn't really here. Can we talk about that? And so the show has really bloomed with that. As far as the process of of writing, you know, for me, the, the words and the music kind of come at the same time, almost like a radio jingle, you know, and then once you get the hook, you, you play with the rest of it. Mm. So this is the first time this story and the music has been rehearsed and performed, I think, am I right? Unless you've done something in New York, this is a world premiere. So it's still... A little bit of work in progress. Is this production essentially a continuation of that workshopping process? And are you open to suggestions from the Stevens performers? We have had the great fortune to rewrite some things while we were here. We've made some cuts. We've made some changes. Danny's changed a few keys on the songs. We've rethought some plot points. But our main goal with the gift that Stevens College has given us of doing our show this Christmas is to see it in its current state because we have it down to a tight 90 minutes. And uh, we're just very excited to see how it plays with an audience because that's the last piece for us at this stage is to see how an audience reacts to the transitions, to the characters, to the songs, to the finale of the show, frankly, because it is a question for us. Ending the show is always a challenge. So we feel great about it, and we we hope the audience agrees. We're not sure if Stevens is going to have talkbacks, but we are completely open to people's thoughts about this process. I think, like I said, the audience is the last piece of the puzzle, and we'd love to hear from people. I wondered about that, whether there was a chance for audience reaction to be taken into account before you finalize it. I mean, at what point do you say this is a finished production? Here is the script and you know people can license it. How do you know when it's done? Well, we can license it now, which is the beauty of the way licensing works, because we do have it with a smaller licensing company. But if we were lucky enough to be picked up by one of the bigger licensing companies in New York, we would have to freeze the show. And I think Danny and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I i would feel very good about freezing it the way it is. I feel so lucky that we've had these four weeks with these students to refine the jokes and refine the transitions Danny wrote some new transition music. So he said it yesterday that the devil is in the transitions. And uh, we're so lucky to have Richard Stafford with us directing this show. I've worked with Richard many times as an actor and, and we're dear friends. And he's just got such an eye for flow. I think we would both feel great about putting a stamp on this at the end. But you never know. Once we get it in front of an audience, we're going to be open to those moments. And I should probably say that Danny and I are one of us will be at every single performance. So if somebody wanted to find us, they, you know, they could corner us in the lobby and (laughs) tell us what they think. Oh, they will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's take a little bit. uh, Let's listen to a little bit of music from the show. This is Snowflakes Fall, written by Danny Rooney and sung by the ensemble. But in this version, this is just Danny singing it. So let's take a listen. Don't you love the hush of a midnight snowfall? Don't you love the smell of the air? Dancing all around as the snowflakes tumble, stumbling without a care. Don't you love the crunch of a fresh-packed snowball? Don't you love the way that it flies? Look at how the snow is accumulating, piling up before our eyes. Snow 
that was just a clip of Snowflakes Fall from A Small Town Christmas. I want to ask you, in, in most artistic processes, there comes a point where you have to kill a darling. Some components of your work that you really like, but that other editors, reviewers or collaborators just don't really bond with. So I'm curious, did either of you have to kill a darling in Small Town Christmas, Danny? Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd call them darlings. Um, <laughs> there were a few songs for sure. Um, I mean, we, we did a big rewrite, basically right at the beginning of COVID, you know, when we were stuck inside and station I sort of got on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. And um, we did a pretty massive rewrite of things, um, turned it into a one act instead of a two act. And um, there were some songs that, you know, we listened back to and we said, I mean, there were more than a few songs that we... Uh, that we took out. We decided that the show needed a few more contemporary songs. It's a very old-fashioned kind of Mickey and Judy style show, but we decided, especially as the show keeps going, it should be new and old-fashioned. So we uh, we definitely got rid of some of the uh, more classic songs, I, I think. Stacia, did you have to give up something? Well, I'll tell you. There was an animated, I'm going to call it animated sequence at the top of the show when we first wrote it, where we would do this entire uh, dumb show at the top with puppets showing how our two leading ladies' parents passed away in a horrible snowshoeing accident. And it made me laugh so hard. There were <laughs> there were uh, headlights going through the mountains and through the passes. And uh, we actually had a theater committed to do it right before covid and I got a call from the artistic director and he says, you can't start a musical with a death. <laughs> you can't do it. So and Danny and I had a long conversation. I was like, well, I thought it was funny. You know, so we had a long conversation and we ended up cutting that. So I but I have to say, I kind of miss it. We may have to bring it back <laughs> at some point. I remember when you called me and said that, I said, well, have they seen every Disney movie ever? Yes. I mean, maybe it's just because it's Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> but it was very cute. I will say that. It was very sweet. And uh, it set up the feel of our show. Our show definitely has a, a goofy slapstick feel to it, you know, and, and heartwarming, too. It's a little waiting for Guffman meets Hairspray meets Mickey and Judy. That's what we, we like to say. Yeah. I would have been pro leaving the snowshoe scene in at the beginning, for sure. I w Thank <laughs> you. There is one line that really made me laugh out loud in one of the songs. Uh, <laughs> so this is a question probably for Danny. That Maybe this is a Sondheim influence. You've made a Ooh. mental isthmus linking pain with Christmas. That, that could be genius. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I was writing that song, and I'm pretty sure I just went on Rhyme Zone, and Isthmus is the only word that technically rhymes with Christmas <laughs> when you look. And so I said, this show is so goofy and strange, you know, at parts, and this character is so over the top. I said, I think, I think it can work. I think it can work. And the, the actress really uh, uh, hams it up when, when you see it. <laughs> so what happens to A Small Town Christmas after its run in Columbia? What happens next for it, Stacia? We are lucky enough that Columbia has a Carl Busson Productions is coming in to film it for us next Wednesday night. And that really is going to be so valuable for Danny and I because we're going to be able to get some footage of it so that we can piece together a sizzle reel and we're going to make it available to the country to do next Christmas. That's our goal. And we're so, we're so grateful to Stevens for giving us that opportunity. 
Oh, sorry. I thought you were going to carry on. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was too. But I was like, what else could I say? So grateful for the opportunity. Perfect. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, a Small Town Christmas opens at Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre tomorrow night for four evening performances this weekend, plus Friday and Saturday next weekend. And there's also a 2pm matinee this Sunday, December the 5th. To find out more about this production and the rest of the Stevens season, go to stevens.edu forward slash box hyphen office. And writer Stacia Fernandez and composer Danny J. Rooney, thank you so much for taking time away from rehearsal to tell us about the show. Thank, Thank you, Diana. You, Diana, come, come see us when you come see the show, okay? I will come and give you my opinion. <laughs> please do, please honest, do. Honest, be honest. <laughs> One of my favourite digital theatre experiences of last year was the production of A Christmas Carol by Ara Rock's Lyceum Theatre. After nine months of watching online performances, some brilliantly produced, some that were a bit more labour-intensive to watch, the Lyceum's holiday season digital offering was a joy to watch, creatively filmed, amazingly performed, given that all the actors were recording themselves remotely and then seamlessly stitched together by the man who brings Ebenezer Scrooge to life every holiday season at the Lyceum Theatre. It's producing artistic director Quinn Gresham. This year, A Christmas Carol is back in person and on stage in Ararok. And Quinn is here this evening to talk all things Scrooge. Welcome back to the show, Quinn. Diana, I am so happy to be with you. This is always such a fun chat. Did you win any awards for your Christmas Carol production? Because you really should have done. Well, that's very kind of you. No, there there were uh, <laughs> in the, uh, the great... Uh, pandemic explosion of a virtual theater i don't know that there necessarily were any awards but i will say far more meaningful to me than that was how much the production meant to people who had really missed the work that we do and that in tandem with getting a whole bunch of my very favorite actors on the planet working together and telling a story that 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 really was the greatest award and uh, and one that uh, even if such an award existed it wouldn't belong to me it would belong to all of the countless people involved in putting that together it was really a lot of fun it was uh, as steep a learning curve as anything i think we've ever faced here and as much as i enjoyed and uh, was proud of that accomplishment. I am so delighted to return to the stage this year with our annual production. Are you going to make the digital version accessible somewhere for people who cannot or would prefer not to come to the theatre this year? You're not the first person to ask me that question. And one of the uh, the agreements that we made with Actors' Equity Association when we did the show last year was that it was a one-time only event and poof, it's gone. And in so many ways... I uh, I like that. Uh, that that is that is what theater is supposed to be. It is an ephemeral experience that you can't rewind and watch again. It has to live in your heart and mind and soul. And I know for me, uh, the very first theater experiences I had as a very little kid are still with me. Now, are they actually reflective of what I saw? I don't know. But those images of seeing, for example, one of the one of the first things I ever remember seeing was Yul Brenner and the King and I. Uh, and uh, I don't really remember anything, except when I shut my eyes, I see a lot of red and gold. So somewhere that is still uh, still a part of me. I was 
surprised to learn that this Lyceum tradition is only in its seventh year. I thought your Christmas Carol production went back for decades. What was the precursor to a Christmas Carol and how did it become a tradition after only seven years? I thought traditions had to be old as the hills. Well, if you do it twice, it can be a tradition <laughs> as long as you really embrace it. We never had programming in December in the entire however many years old the theater was in, in 2014. That had never happened. We had done holiday programming, but we'd always veered toward November, early November usually, because we were concerned about weather and not sure if audiences would want to make the trek out to Air Rock for Christmas. And I had a great conversation with my uh, good friend and now emeritus board member of the Lyceum, Rob Lamb, who uh, owns Lamb Tech in Sedalia. And he loves Christmas. We were chatting over lunch one day and uh, I said, you know, the theater is perfectly situated in this town that reflects mid 19th century architecture in a way that you can't really find elsewhere in Missouri. And Charles Dickens was writing a Christmas Carol at the time that these buildings exist existed. Uh, wouldn't it be neat if we just gave it a shot? The hope would be that it becomes an annual experience, but let's try it once and see. And Rob, through his company, Lamb Tech, and with the support of his amazing wife, Lisa, agreed that we should give it a shot. And uh, it began in 2014. And compared to how it has grown over the many years, 2014 seems I don't want to say primitive, that's the wrong word, but uh, the, the the production has expanded in terms of the actors on stage, in terms of the sound design, the lighting design, the costume design, the scenic design. Every year, it has been embellished and improved upon, and that's not something we ever get to do with any other show. Usually you do it, it closes, and then maybe 10 years later, we'll give it a shot again. This one we get to return to every year and refine it and make it even better. And uh, it's really a, just a terrific experience to return to, especially after not having done it in 2020. So this year you are back in person with many alums of the production. You have Don Richard back as Scrooge. You have our friend Monica Palmer's son, Gabe Palmer, as Peter Cratchit and many others who are returning to the Lyceum Theatre. I'm curious whether it is easier than ever to find actors right now, whether there is a pandemic reticence to return still for some people. Not that we have really experienced. Uh, a Christmas Carol is made up every year of actors that we consider to be part of our extended theater family. And uh, without fail, everybody that we asked to join us this year said, you bet, let's do it. <laughs> and it's it's a terrific experience because it's a very meaningful story and one that is obviously very important to me, but also very important to the people who acted out for, for the audience. But it is also a family reunion of sorts for us. We get together with folks who have maybe had a long history with the theater, but never actually worked uh, individually with one another. And uh, the esprit de corps that exists among that group is, it is palpable. It is, it is fun. It is inspiring. And I think all of those feelings really contribute to it being some of the best work we do every year. Well, you always have something magical up your sleeve for each year's production. Can you give us a little hint about what extra spark of creativity you might have added for the 2021 version of the show? 
Let's see. I, I would say probably the, the biggest thing that audiences might experience this year, we've had so many terrific costume designers that have worked on the show over the however many years we've been doing it. One of my all-time favorite costume designers who designed all of the shows that have taken place this year from The Little Mermaid, Sister Act, Singing in the Rain, he has never been available to work on A Christmas Carol just because of schedules and other commitments. This year it actually works out that Garth Dunbar is going to be able to put his his magic sauce on our costumes. And I think that that is going to elevate the production again to a whole new exciting level. So that is something which is not necessarily a change in the structure of the production, but something that I think the audience will definitely feel. Also, there are people that have never been in the show before that are going to bring a whole new energy to it. Some really, really terrific performers, again, who we consider a part of our theatrical family that have yet to appear in A Christmas Carol will be in it this year. And just by their very presence, the show will change. And that's one of the things that I love about storytelling. I grew up in the South where uh, my extended family members told tall tales, <laughs> uh, very uh, long spun yarns that couldn't have any actual resemblance to the original source material of the story. But every time the story was told, it became a little bit better. It became a little deeper. It became a little funnier. It became more meaningful. And uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about revisiting the story every year is the story just gets better and better. Did making a filmed version of the show last year change your ideas about what was possible to do in the theatre? And is there are there any elements of that digital production that you're able to seamlessly blend into the in-person show? I don't know that there will be any real correlation between the virtual production and what we're doing on stage just because they are vastly different mediums, but also the approach was different. In order to convey all of the action of the story uh, for the virtual production, I sort of had to assume that as the narrator, as opposed to a live production where we can actually just do those things. Uh, we can show people dancing. We can, you know, to just live out life where we couldn't do that in the virtual production. So I don't know that there will be any major carryover, but I will say revisiting the Dickens text to adapt the virtual production uh, did help me uh, center my thoughts around some of the things that he says that weren't included in our onstage version. And while I don't know that many of the words will appear, the, the thrust of the words, I think, will be clearer. This is a very boring, esoteric way of talking <laughs> about the process. But I, I do think that a lot of that stuff that I revisited in a different way has seeped in to my thinking about the show. And I think that that will be a part of, uh, of the ultimate final product, if there ever is such a thing as an ultimate final product. Well, A Christmas Carol opens at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock on Wednesday, December the 15th for 12 performances, including five afternoon matinees, and it ends on Thursday, the 23rd of December. You can find out more about the show at lyceumtheatre.org and Quinn Gresham. Thank you, as always, for putting so much creative love and enthusiasm into our local theatre world and for taking time to chat this evening. Thank you so much for spreading the word. We really appreciate you. Jukebox musicals really took off after the year 2000, but the very first one is often considered to be The Beggar's Opera in 1728, which was a satire of Italian opera focused on ordinary people and which told its story with tunes that audiences were already familiar with. 
Flash forward to the modern era and the 1976 production of Bubbling Brown Sugar was maybe the first modern version of a jukebox musical featuring works made popular during the Harlem Renaissance. I think it's hard to argue that anything other than Mamma Mia, which employed the works of ABBA to create its storyline, is the most famous jukebox musical of the 21st century. But the same year that Mamma Mia launched, another jukebox musical called The Marvelous Wanderettes opened at the Milwaukee Repertory Theatre and did so well that its creator, Roger Bean, wrote three sequels, one of which... The Winter Wanderettes takes to the stage at Columbia Entertainment Company this weekend. And here to tell us more about the show is CEC's Executive Director, Enola White, and the show's Director, David Hall. Hello, David and Enola. Hello. Hello. So for those of us who prefer the secular approach to the holidays, the Winter Wanderettes is like a giant dose of peppermint-spiced holiday cheer, or as Variety (laughs) magazine wrote, this altogether pleasant mixture of character conflict, ineptitude, and terrific Maguire sisters-style chanteusing is as comfortable as coming home for the holidays to Coco and a Johnny Mathis Christmas album. (laughs) David, are you feeling full of sugar and spice, or is the stress of opening week catching up with you? I mean, it's, it's kind of a mix of both. I'm a Christmas person at heart. I'm a Christmas baby. So anytime I get to celebrate it, I'm all for it. So kind of the the joy of opening a Christmas musical is topping the, the stress of the week. Enola, this musical seems like one that theatre companies would be doing every year. What is Columbia Entertainment Company's history with the Wanderettes series? This is our first go at it. Um, so hopefully folks come out and see Winter Wonderettes, and then maybe we'll do the other two shows in the series with the Marvelous Wonderettes. The Winter Wanderettes, David, is the first sequel to The Marvelous Wanderettes, which introduces us to the four main characters, Missy, Betty Jean, Cindy Lou and Susie, at their prom at Springfield High School and then flashes forward to their 10-year reunion party. So tell us where we find the girls in this first sequel, The Winter Wanderettes. You kind of see where they all have been. Betty Jean is working at Harper's Hardware Store, which is where the show takes place. And the audience member gets to be members of the hardware store. So that's a it's a fun little audience interaction. We get to see just all of them coming back together to put on a winter show because they were begging the owner, Mr. Harper, to put on a Christmas show. And Mr. Harper finally said yes. So Betty Jean got the girls back together to create a wonderful night of Christmas memories. So we're in Harper's Hardware Store, but there is, as you say, this this audience interaction in that they break the fourth wall. So we, the audience, are kind of in the store with them. Are we supposed to be the audience of their show? What's the interaction with the audience? It's kind of a mix. Like everyone comes in, you're supposed to feel like you're you're a Harper's employee. There's actually a couple people that might get brought on stage but they're all watching the Wonderettes put on. They're the the Wonderettes are the entertainment portion of the Harper's Holiday Hardware happening. And so, how do you make us feel like we're part of the show? There's a lot of audience interaction where we'll bring up the house lights. Sometimes the Wonderettes will actually come into the audience. We have a couple of songs where we'll bring a couple of people on stage, and you get to ring some bells. It'll it's it's going to be a fun time. <laughs> I'm going to sit at the back. <laughs> They'll find you. <laughs> 
As with many musicals, there is the option to rent the score or rent a pre-recorded backing soundtrack. Enola, what option did you go for and how do those two options compare financially? Well, we went for live in-person music. So you're actually going to see a little band combo on the stage with the Wonderettes, just like as if you were at a holiday party. And there's a little bit of interaction between the Wonderettes and the band as well. Financially, It's kind of a mixed bag. It depends on the show, whether or not the tracks are going to be um, more or less expensive than just sending out the scores and finding musicians to play. But then sometimes, you know, you got to pay your musician. So it sometimes comes out to a wash in the end if you have the the tracks or if you, you have live music. But we prefer live music. It just adds another element to it. And we're very happy that we can be back to doing live music in the theater space. So I saw Hedrick and the Angry Inch a couple of months ago that you had on stage at CEC and you had the band on the stage then. And that was a challenge with the sound. I sat close to the front and I thought, oh, I should have sat further back because I could hear the band a lot more loudly than I could hear the singers. How how are you doing that this time around? Well, one, you're not going to be at a rock concert. (laughs) So that's how we're we're kind of adjusting with that. And two, we're working with the balance a little bit more um, just because of the style of music. It's easier to balance the vocals and the band. um, It's a five piece band, bass, guitar, piano, drums, and reeds. So it's a little interesting combo, but it's a pretty nice balance in the house. David, you are directing just four cast members. You have Cara Carter, Natalie Botkins, Madison Pope and Kylie Bales. And they all play distinct characters in the show. Tell us a little bit about the four characters and also what you were looking for in your casting choices. So starting off, we have Missy, which is played by Cara Carter. Missy is the one that she's not the leader of the group, but she always aspires to have everything in control. And she's the one that kind of knows everything and what's going to happen throughout the night. Then we have Betty Jean, which is played by Natalie Bakins. Betty Jean's finally in charge of the Wonderettes for tonight, mainly because she works at Harper's Hardware Store and she just wants everything to be perfect. She doesn't really want to reflect on herself that much throughout the night until we finally get to realize why. Um, and we, we get to find out how she works through that and how she ends up happy at the end of it. Then we have Susie, which is played by Kylie Bales. She is the little homemaker of the group that she actually is pregnant again after just having twins in June. So she's, She's wired. She's just Christmas makes her so happy. Uh, so she's just like a little bundle of joy that you get to experience the entire night. And then we have Cindy Lou, which is played by Madison Pope. And Cindy Lou is kind of she likes to be the the sassy, the the sexy one of the group, and where she's like, oh, you think that you can play something sexy? Let me try that. <laughs> so it, it's a it's a fun thing and reading the character descriptions when I got the script, I was trying to look through the people that auditioned and out of the group that I had, I was like, okay, this person seems like they're constantly happy or they can be someone that's like peppy about Christmas. And this looks like someone that easily will take charge. And that's kind of how I, I casted the four women was because in my callbacks, they all made strong character choices on, on who they wanted. 
Well, let's take a little listen to some music from the show. This is Mr. Santa from the original studio cast recording featuring Misty Cotton, Julie Dixon Jackson, Betts Malone, and Darcy Roberts. Employees, friends, and loved ones, welcome to the 1968 Harper's Hardware Holiday Happening. Santa from the original studio cast recording of The Winter Wanderettes. David, as one of the reviewers of the show said, this is a show that has Maguire sister style harmonies, which is not an easy thing to achieve with four cast members who don't have a long history of singing together. Talk to me about the musical challenges in this show. Yeah, this, as you'll hear throughout the show, there's a lot of intricate harmonies that all of these women sing. I think almost every song, there's going to be a harmony within it. And the way we kind of tackled that was, I believe the first two weeks we just spent on music. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to add choreography yet. I don't want to add blocking. I want you guys to get the music down. Since CEC is a community theater, not everyone comes in with musical backgrounds. And luckily I have some people that had musical backgrounds like Kara and Natalie and then I had people that they would do community theater, but they didn't really have any vocal lessons or music lessons. And then they came in and they just worked their butts off to to get these notes down. And I think it they sound they sound beautiful. They absolutely do. Enola, do you have a favorite moment in the show? My favorite is I'm not actually sure if it's a song from a jukebox or if it was specifically written for the show, but it's Susie Snowflake. It's a character song specifically for the character Susie, and she is utterly adorable in it. And it's just a lot of fun to play and a lot of fun to watch her shine on stage.
Well, The Winter Wanderettes opens at Columbia Entertainment Company tonight and runs for three weekends on Thursday, Friday and Saturday evenings, plus there are three Sunday matinee performances. Audience members are required to wear masks throughout the show and capacity is limited to 75 seats per performance. You can find out more at cectheatre.org and Enola White and David Hall. Thanks for putting some more holiday sparkle into the season and for telling us about the show. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having us. When the audience sits down in the Missouri Theatre on December the 12th to watch the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's annual Symphony of the Toys concert, there will be a rare and exciting sight on the stage, a female conductor, Argentinian-Italian Michelle Di Rosso. I say rare because there is a huge lack of gender parity in the conducting world, and exciting because it is one of those instances where little girls in the audience who may never have thought conducting was for them can see someone who looks like them leading an orchestra. And the Symphony of Toys concert is a wonderful place to see a female conductor as there are always so many children in that audience. In 2020, Michelle was the co-creator of an organization called Girls Who Conduct, and she's also the new interim director of orchestras at Cornell University. And she is with us today, along with the concert's creative director and former Broadway performer, Melissa Bohon-Wibble, and the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's executive director, Trent Rash, a.k.a. Mr. Mosey. Hello, Trent, Melissa and Michelle. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Michelle, I am so thrilled that little girls get to see you on the podium in this concert. Was it a place that you saw yourself when you were growing up? Well, that's an interesting question because I didn't get to see a role model, you know, and I hope that it really inspires other little girls to see a female conductor and then be like, oh, I can do that as well, right? But Growing up, I didn't see any female conductors, but when I was studying, conducting my undergraduate degree, I got to learn about Mary Nolsop. And, you know, she was the key for me to think that I could actually have a career in conducting and be really inspired and motivated to keep pushing through, you know, until I could have a career and keep studying. You had a background in, I think, uh, musical theatre and opera. You were definitely you were studying the performing arts, but I believe it was Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Five that convinced you that conducting was your life's work. Tell us about that moment. <laughs> yeah, wow! I, I'm so thrilled and honored that you know this story. Um, So I was actually in a musical theater company doing eight shows a week. You know, I thought that that was what I wanted to do with my life. And I was parallelly studying conducting in Argentina. And our final exam consisted in conducting Beethoven 5, first movement. And it was a little savage because you had to go through the whole movement without stopping. And if you had to stop, then you failed. (laughs) And, you know, when I stood there in front of the orchestra and got to be, you know, the commander of my own musical and artistic ideas, I just, there was no way back for me. And I just felt the energy of the orchestra and that just inspired me more and fired me more. And after doing that, I just realized that I needed to switch careers. And so that's what I did. I focused 100% in conducting and I left behind my musical theater background. Yeah. Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5 is a pretty powerful place to start. Trent, how did you lure Michelle to Columbia for the Symphony of Toys concert? Well, you know, actually my director of education and outreach, Dr. Ashley Pribble, 
studied with uh, Michelle, I believe, at Arizona State University. And Michelle's name ended up on a list of young conductors that we were looking out for as we do our music director search. And so as I was doing researching all these conductors, I just was really intrigued by her resume and, and her story and and, and uh, was really excited to, when I saw that she also had a love for musical theater, as both Melissa and I obviously do. And I thought she'd be a great fit. It is fantastic to for the for the audience for your audience on the twelfth of December to see a female conductor in front of the orchestra. Has the Missouri Symphony had a female conductor before? You know, we have not ever had a female conductor at the helm. There have been some assistant conductors for the Summer Music Festival who have been female, but to this day, there's never been one that has done Symphony of Toys for sure. The Symphony of Toys has been going on as long as I can remember, and certainly far longer than your tenure with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. But tell us what you know about how it got started, Trent. Yeah, it actually got started in the 1980s with our our founder, Conductor Laureate Hugo Vianello. It was a partnership between him and Shelter Insurance, who is still our sponsor to this day. And it went on for a good 15 years, and then it just fell away. And then it was restarted in 2011. Again, with the partnership, we went back to Shelter, and they were on board, and and it's been going ever since. So this will be its 10th year since then. And is it a fundraiser, or it's in support of the Marine Toys for Tots program? How does that fit in? Two ways. One is that you can bring an unwrapped toy that they will take and that can be donated. This year, we're also doing a $5 children's ticket and we are donating all of that money to Toys for Tots because we learned last year when we did our virtual Symphony of Toys that money is just as good if not better. So we're going to take all the money that we raise from the children's ticket sales and donate it back to Toys for Tots. Melissa, the 20 songs you have selected for this year's concert run the gamut from 19th century carols to show tunes, Tchaikovsky to arrangements by a contemporary Mizzou composer, sing-along numbers to numbers performed by great local singers like Nolly Moore and Simone Sparks, Rishara Knight and Shelby Ringdahl and others. And you've got Christmas medleys going on too. And yet there are so many thousands of other pieces of music you could have chosen. How do you decide and what's your arc of the concert philosophy? (laughs) Well, I guess it depends on my mood when I wake (laughs) up. I don't know. (laughs) You're right. There are so many incredible choices. Um, It is very hard to narrow down. I think the arc of the story kind of was the idea that we had these more contemporary singers for a section, then we had a section with Santa, and then we had a more spiritual section. So just those were our three splits. And then it just kind of hits you. You hear a song and you're like, oh, that that would fit really well, especially, for example, you mentioned Simone Sparks, and I had thought of her for a particular number and thought, well, we just got, we've got to do it because I can just hear her singing it. So I'm very lucky to have that local talent as inspiration as well. So as a creative director for the concert, what were your principal considerations when you were putting the show together? Presumably, you did you choose all the music? Yes, <laughs> I did. So it was, it, uh, I guess I spearheaded a lot of the music and then was able to meet with Trent and Michelle And kind of, um, we did have a little, uh, because of COVID and everything, we um, we were trying not to bite off too much at one time for our first collaborative work. So we did look back on some of the previous Symphony of Toys concerts and grabbed a couple of those classics that we know the symphony just plays so brilliantly and, and that are really big crowd pleasers. 
And so when putting it all together, we, we kind of did some old and some new things together. Does that make sense? Did that answer your question? Yeah, I can see that in the list of songs <laughs> that you have that it you know it covers a couple of centuries. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and Nolly Moore is also a, a good friend of mine and mentor, and, and he would like to dive even deeper into some of those older classics and choral arrangements, which I know we will probably do in the future, whether it's through Symphony of Toys or other ways. But we just have a wide variety of talent and singers and groups from classic choirs to pop icons. So I got lucky with just the talent being, again, a huge inspiration for what pieces we chose. And Michelle, as well as conducting the orchestra, you are also the music director. So tell me what that entailed. What are your music director choices for this concert? Well, I think that we all agreed that we needed some uh, classical Christmas songs that we can't miss, right? Like, Oh, Holy Night or, you know, A Christmas Festival by Lural Anderson. Those are classics that I think everybody coming to a Holiday Pops concert are expecting us to play. So I think we also based our choices on what are the, the hits that everybody wants to hear during the holiday season. And, you know, as well as being the music director, I'll be participating and acting a little bit. <laughs> so my musical theater background will be included. And we're hoping that in the future with Melissa, we can include some tap dance. So stay tuned for future years. Yes. Fantastic. And Trent, will Mr. Mosey be making an appearance at the concert? You know, Mr. Mosey (laughs) had such a big time at the Young People's Concert. He's just going to enjoy, I believe, this concert (laughs) is what he's telling me. So he's taking a little break. (laughs) He'll be watching from the wings, I'm sure. That's right. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about the orchestra, Trent, because it isn't, Missouri Symphony isn't really a year-round orchestra. You pull different people in at different times of year. So who comprises this symphony? This is um, a large part local players, whether they be university professors. We actually have some really wonderful local talent that are private teachers in certain instruments. And then also we go a little regionally. So we use some of our St. Louis or Kansas City players if they're available. So it's it's a very much a more Missouri symphony. It's very Missouri based, this, the orchestra during Symphony of Toys. How many times are they able to rehearse before the concert? So not very many. I'm always astounded. As a choral singer, we rehearse so much, but these folks get together. They're going to have two rehearsals and then do two performances. <laughs> Melissa, I read somewhere that your favorite songs to sing are Broadway's Golden Era and Sondheim. So given the death last week of Stephen Sondheim, I wonder whether you might be sliding a little Sondheim number into the show. <laughs> well, I don't remember if he wrote any uh, Christmas musicals, but... I do love and appreciate Stephen Sondheim. I actually sang in a choir for his 70th birthday in New York. So yes, that is a huge loss, but such a contribution to Broadway and just music in general. But I can't think of any any songs right now that we could easily slide in there. I don't know, Michelle, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think we should think about it. <laughs> we still have one week, right? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go out with a little music that will be in the concert. This is the beautiful American folk melody, Appalachian Carol, arranged and orchestrated here by Dan Geller, which is the arrangement you'll hear in the Symphony of Toys concert.
The Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Symphony of Toys holiday concert benefiting the Marine Toys for Tots program will be at the Missouri Theatre on Sunday, December the 12th at 3pm. To find out more about the concert and other events, programs and initiatives, go to themosey.org. And Trent Rash, Michelle DiRusso and Melissa Bohan-Webble, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, Diana. Always a pleasure. for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, writer Stacia Fernandez and composer Danny J. Rooney, artistic director Quinn Gresham from the Lyceum Theatre in Ararok, Columbia Entertainment Company executive director Enola White and musical director David Hall, and from the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, its executive director Trent Rash, creative director for the Symphony of Toys concert Melissa Bohan-Webble, and the concert's conductor Michelle DiRosso. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!